Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 22. Our scripture reading this morning is Luke 22, 7 through 22. If you are using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find Luke 22, 7 on page 881. Luke 22, 7 through 22. This is the very word of God. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, you will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, This, take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I will not drink the, of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup had the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man whom by whom he is betrayed. That is the reading of God's word. Thank you, Jacob, and thank you to all the youth who have led us in worship this morning. Let us go before God now and pray for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we do humbly come before you, asking that you remember your promise, not to allow your word to return to you void, but by the work and power of your Holy Spirit, Father, may you cause it to bring forth an abundant harvest, in our lives here this morning, all to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the previous paragraph, which we looked at last Sunday, we saw the birth of the plot to kill Jesus. The priests and the, the scribes had been looking for a way to destroy Jesus ever since he arrived in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. However, they didn't feel that they could do anything to him because of the crowds. They feared that moving against Jesus directly might provoke a populist uprising. And so, as Luke tells us in verse 2, they were seeking how to put him to death. They were trying to come up with a scheme. They were trying to develop a plan whereby they might kill Jesus without provoking the crowds. 
And the plan that they were looking for materialized when Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples, approached them and agreed to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. Now we know from what follows and from the other gospel writers that Jesus is fully aware of what is going on. He will say in verse 21, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. He, he knows that he is going to be betrayed. And he knows by whom he is going to be betrayed. John tells us in his gospel that, that Jesus at that same supper says, The one who will betray me is the one to whom I give this morsel of bread dipped in wine. And he then gave it to Judas, saying, What you are going to do, do quickly. So Jesus knows what's going on. He, he knows that he is going to be betrayed, and he knows by whom he is going to be betrayed. In fact, it's probably too weak to say simply that he knows. It's not just that he knows what is about to happen. Sometimes we know something is going to happen and there's nothing that we can do about it. Something is going to happen and, and we have no control over the situation, so we, we resign ourselves to the fact. That's not what's going on here. <coughs> Jesus more than knows what is about to happen. He more than is resigned to the inevitable Jesus is in control. Yes, the, the leaders are plotting. Yes, Judas is, is going to betray him. But as the narrative makes clear, Jesus is the one who is ultimately orchestrating the situation. Notice again what he says in verse 22. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. All that is about to unfold is going to unfold according to plan, according to his Father's plan, according to his plan. Jesus is in control of the unfolding drama. And he knows it. He knows that he is in control. But he also knows that his disciples don't yet know. They, they don't yet understand. They, they don't get it. And he knows that they are going to be dazed and confused by his betrayal and by his arrest and by his condemnation and crucifixion and eventual burial. They are, they are going to be perplexed. They are going to be caught off guard. They, they are going to be bewildered. And it is for this reason that Jesus longs to have one last meal with them. He, he wants to explain to them one more time before the chaos erupts exactly the, the meaning of all that is about to unfold. One last time, Jesus is going to explain to his disciples the true significance of all that is about to take place. And this morning, I want us to listen carefully to what he has to say. This morning, I want us to, to listen carefully to Jesus' final teaching regarding his own death. We're going to do that under three headings this morning. I know you don't have an outline, so I may catch you a little off guard. But we're going to have three points, basically, this morning. First, we're going to look at the context of the meal. Second, we're going to look at the instructions given to prepare for the meal. And finally, we're going to look at Jesus' own explanation 
of the meal. So let's begin with the context. As I said, Jesus is the one in control. This is his plan, and he has chosen his setting very carefully. He has been very intentional. We see it there in verse 7. Notice when all this takes place. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. And so the setting, the, the, the setting of all that is about to happen, the setting of, of Jesus' betrayal and, and trial and crucifixion, the setting of all that is about to happen is Passover. But why would Jesus choose Passover? Why now? Yes, there's a, a great crowd in Jerusalem, but it's more than just the fact that he needed an audience for what was going to unfold. It seems clear that, that Jesus has chosen Passover as the setting for, for all that is about to happen because Passover was a picture of what he was about to do. What Jesus is about to do is the fulfillment of what Passover was always intended to point towards. Think about Passover. Think about the, the significance of, of that feast in, in Jewish history. Passover was established as a memorial of the events surrounding the, the tenth and final plague before the Exodus. You probably know the history, but let me remind you of the details. In Genesis chapter 12, God chose Abraham as, as the one through whom he would bring to fruition the, the redemption that he had promised to accomplish immediately after the fall. You remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve had, had rebelled against God and plunged all of creation into sin and rebellion against God and brought down God's curse and futility upon all that he had made. Remember that in that very moment, God promised that he would undo what Adam had done. He would put right what Adam had put wrong. And in Genesis chapter 12, he chooses Abraham as the one through whom. It is through the seed of Abraham that that promise will be fulfilled. Abraham's descendants will become the great nation. They will become the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. But at the end of the book of Genesis, we find that the, the descendants of Abraham are not flourishing in the land. In fact, they don't even own any piece of the land yet except for a small burial plot. And because of a famine, they're actually forced to, to leave the land. And they, they go down to Egypt that they might find food to eat. But God has, has provided for, for their protection there. And he has sent Joseph on ahead. Remember Joseph's famous words, what, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. God sent Joseph to Egypt, that, that the children of Israel might be provided for, and that they might flourish. And it's there in Egypt that they begin to grow into a great nation. But then we turn the page and we read in the first chapter of the book of Exodus that a Pharaoh came to power who did not remember Joseph. Probably doesn't mean that he didn't remember the stories about Joseph, but rather he didn't regard Joseph as a friend. He didn't regard Joseph's family as, as allies. This might have been a Pharaoh who actually had taken power from the Pharaoh, who, who had ser been served by Joseph. And so he sees the Israelites as a threat, and he, he begins, to, begins to persecute them. He begins to enslave them. He begins to, to treat them harshly. And it's in that slavery that, that they exist for some 400 years. Until the Lord calls 
Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. But of course, Pharaoh isn't inclined to to give up his slaves. He isn't inclined to give up this this workforce that has labored for him, building his his cities and his, his monuments. And so when Moses comes into the presence of Pharaoh and says, Let my people go, thus says the Lord, Pharaoh says, No. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And it's with that that a battle ensues. A a battle between Pharaoh, who claims to be the rightful Lord of the Israelites, and Yahweh himself, who claims to be the rightful Lord of the Israelites. And that battle unfolds in ten plagues. And in the first nine of those plagues, Yahweh again and again and again shows himself to be supreme. He shows himself to be the Lord God Almighty. He undoes all the power of Egypt. But nevertheless, despite his utter defeat, Pharaoh's heart remains hard. And he refuses to let Israel go. And it is at that point that the Lord announces the tenth And final plague. You probably remember the horror of it. The tenth and final plague is going to be this. That all the firstborn, from the the child of the servant to the child of the king, even including their their herds and their flocks, every firstborn in the land of Egypt is going to die. And when we hear that, we wonder, how? How could God do such a thing? How how could God inflict such a horror upon anyone, even even the Egyptians? But as we reflect upon the horror of that tenth plague, we must remember that even in this, we see the mercy of God. We don't see it at first because... Our vision of ourselves is so distorted. We we fail to see ourselves clearly. And all we see, therefore, is is the horror. But but there is mercy here. Because remember, the firstborn represent the whole. The firstborn represent the, the entire nation. And what God is saying is that the judgment that the nation deserves is now about to fall upon the firstborn. You see, it wasn't just the firstborn who deserved to die. It was everyone in the nation who deserved to die. The death of the firstborn is actually a picture of the judgment that all Egyptians deserve. And so therefore, in pouring out his wrath only upon the firstborn as a a foretaste of the wrath that is to come, it is actually a warning, a a warning of mercy to the Egyptians of what they will all one day have to do. Endure. A picture of the wrath of God that is stored up for them one day to be released. But of course, it's not only the Egyptians who deserve to suffer that wrath. It's not only the, the Egyptians who are guilty before God. This people whom God has chosen for himself, they're sinners too. They're guilty Two, they are grumbling, selfish complainers, too. And so therefore, they, too, are deserving of the wrath of God. Why, then, will God judge Egypt and spare Israel? 
Is he simply playing favorites? Is he, is he simply showing partiality? The biblical answer to that question is clear. No, not at all. God is righteous, and he always acts righteously. He is a just judge, and he does not play favorites. He, he shows no partiality. This is what Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 2. And so the reality is, is that when God announces this tenth and final plague, this, this, this foretaste of, of judgment that is a, to be poured out upon those in Egypt, he says that there will actually be no distinction between Israel and Egypt with respect to the final plague. Every firstborn, Egyptian and Israelite alike, will die. Every firstborn will receive from God the just penalty for his sins. I know at this point you're saying, but that's not how I remember the story. <laughs> that's not the way I remember this all going down. I don't remember the firstborn of Israel being killed. And of course you're right. That's not how the, for the story unfolds. The, the firstborn of Israel will be spared. But if you're going to understand Passover, if you're going to understand what Jesus does with Passover, then you have to understand that the firstborn of Israel are not spared because they are Israelites and not Egyptians. That, that, that's not the distinction that God is going to make. It's, it's not that the Israelites are, are righteous and the, the Egyptians are wicked and therefore God will spare the Israelites but He'll punish the Egyptians. No, they are all alike sinners before the throne. They are all alike justly deserving of wrath. Again, remember how Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And just in case we, we miss the point, he, he says it as clearly as he can. Both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. All. Jews and Gentiles alike have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and therefore are justly deserving of His wrath. And so God does not spare the firstborn of Israel because they are Israelites. But why then? Why then are they spared? Well, that is what Passover is all about. God will not spare the Israelites because they are Israelites, but rather, He will provide for them a way of salvation. You remember the story. He, he instructs them to sacrifice a lamb and, and to spread its blood upon the, the doorpost of their homes. And then He tells them that when the avenger comes, when, when the angel of death comes to, to pour out God's wrath upon the firstborn, when the avenger comes, he will pass over the house covered with the blood. And the firstborn in that house will not die. And so the firstborn of Israel are spared not because they are righteous in themselves, but because they have been covered in the blood. Because they have come under the protection of a substitute. Because another died in their place. That's what Passover is about. 
And that is what Passover, the, the Passover feast that, that everyone has gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate was a memorial of. They, they, they gathered together to celebrate this feast as a memorial of that great day of salvation. But remember what I said. The death of the firstborn was, was only a, a glimpse, only a, a shadow of the true judgment that was deserved. It was only a, a shadow of the judgment that would one day come. And likewise, the Passover lamb was only a shadow of the true salvation that was needed. The true judgment, the, the judgment to which, pass, which, to which the final plague pointed is the, the judgment that Jesus himself has been talking about in the previous chapter. This, this judgment that will come upon all who live on the face of the earth at the end of the age when Jesus returns in a cloud with great power and glory to judge the living and the dead. That is the judgment of which the, the death of the firstborn was merely a foretaste. And the true salvation that is needed, the, the true salvation that, that all those under judgment need, is that salvation foreshadowed by the Lamb. The salvation accomplished by the true Lamb, the, the true Passover Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The, the death, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ Himself. And that is why Jesus chooses Passover as the setting for all that is about to unfold. It's why Jesus uh, controls the situation so that he will be betrayed and so that he will be condemned and so that he will be crucified during this week of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's what he desires for his disciples to see. And it's why he desires to have this last meal with them so that he can explain to them the connections between Passover and what he is about to do. It's why he took such care to, to plan this meal. Look again at the instructions that, that Jesus gives for his disciples to celebrate this meal together. We see them in verses 8 through 13. Jesus gives his disciples, particularly Peter and John, very specific instructions regarding the meal that they are about to eat together. He tells them to go to this house and see this man who's, who's carrying this jar of water and follow him into the house and say, the, the master needs your guest room. And when Jesus gives those types of instructions, it's, it's clear that some careful planning has been done. Careful planning of one kind or another, either human or divine. Maybe it's that Jesus has arranged the details ahead of time and now is only revealing them to his disciples so that Judas doesn't get the scoop and doesn't act too quickly. Or it may be that this has all been divinely orchestrated. Now Jesus, like a prophet, is telling his disciples how this meal is going to unfold. Whether you prefer to see this as human arrangement or whether you prefer to see it as divine orchestration, the, the point is the same. Jesus has planned for this meal beforehand. He has decided that I'm going to do this with my disciples before events unfold. As I said, it shows us that Jesus is in control. But, but more than this, it also shows us Jesus' heart. Notice again what Jesus tells his, his disciples about why he has made these plans. Look again at verses 14 and 15. He says, When the time came, he reclined at table with his apostles, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I, I have wanted to do this with you before my passion. I've wanted to do this with you before I am betrayed. And why? 
with what we've been saying. Jesus intended to use this Passover meal to teach his disciples the, the true significance of the events that were about to unfold. Because he understands that his disciples don't understand yet. And he longs for them to see. He, he longs for them to know. Why? Why is it so important for his disciples to, to know the truth of, of what he is about to do? To understand its, its true significance? Well, first and, and foremost, it's because their lives depend on it. And not just their lives here and now, but their, their eternal lives depend on their response to him. He is the Passover lamb, and they must come under his blood if they would be saved. And so he longs for them to understand who he is, but he also knows that it is in understanding this, in understanding the truth of, of who he is, that they will be able to endure all other ambiguities. All other bewilderments, all other confusions that are sure to come in this life. Even this morning, we, we sang the song, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. And that's a confusing song. Because we're, we're blessing the name of the Lord, yes, when things are, are good, but we're blessing His name also when our lives seem to be falling apart. And of course, that song is based upon the words of, of Job, who, who trusted the Lord, though He slay me. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How can we say such things? How, how can we have such hope in the, in the face of such trials? In the face of such loss? Only when we know Jesus is our Passover lamb. Because you see, if we know that Jesus is our Passover lamb, if we know that he is the one has, who has reconciled us to God, if we know that through faith in him we have been adopted into the family, if we know that through him we now have a seat at the table, then we may not understand the events that unfold any better than we do now. But we will understand the one who is in control of them. And we will know that he is for us, and we will know that he is good, and we will be able to endure with hope. Not with full understanding. That will never come in this life. I'm not sure it will come in the next life. We, we will never understand completely. God is, is beyond our comprehension. We don't always know why He does what He does. But when we know that Jesus is our Passover lamb, we are able to stand firm, unmoved upon the solid rock of His promises. He is for us. And he has demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. He came to give his life as our Passover lamb, that in him we might not die. We might be spared the wrath of God and instead know his blessing. And this is what Jesus begins to make explicitly clear in his explanation of the meal Again, first, Jesus explains the meal generally. We, we see this in verses 16 and, and 18. It's, it's kind of confusing because he talks about eating and drinking before he actually administers the bread and the cup. And people have wondered, well, how many, how many cups were there? How many times did he, he do this? But you have to understand that in verses 16 through 18, he's actually explaining the meal generally. And what he's saying is that his impending death, the events that are about to unfold will be the end of Passover as they have known it for 1,500 years. 
That's the significance of him saying, I will not eat or, or drink again until the kingdom of God. Notice it's not just that he will take up Passover again later, but, but it will actually never be celebrated this way again. It won't be celebrated again until it is fulfilled. It's actually even clearer in Matthew and Mark. He says, we won't ever do this again, but we will do it in a new way in the kingdom of God. Why? Why is the meal being changed? Because what it represents has, has come. The meal is, is being fulfilled. It will never be celebrated this way Again, we will never return to Passover, but rather Passover has pointed us to a true fulfillment. A true fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And he makes this explicit in his specific instructions in verses 19 through 20. First, Jesus takes the bread and we're told that he gives thanks. That's where we get one of our names for the Lord's Supper, the, the Eucharist. It simply means a, a, a prayer of thanksgiving. And so he, he takes the bread and he gives thanks. And after giving thanks, he breaks the bread and he gives it to his disciples saying, Take, this is my body given for you. Given for you. Think about that. That's, that's substitutionary language. That's the, the language of, of sacrifice. Jesus' body is given for us in our place just like the Passover lamb. Jesus is saying, my body is given as the sacrifice for you, that you might not die, but might instead know his blessing. But of course, that raises the, the question, if, if Jesus is the fulfillment of the, the lamb, why does he use the, the bread? It's a, it's a good question. But I think the answer is found in what I just said earlier about, about this being the end of the, the Passover what Jesus is about to do is going to bring to an end not only the Passover, but the entire sacrificial system. There will not be any lambs in the future. And so Jesus has, has transformed it. He says, listen, it's not going to be the lamb anymore, but you're going to eat the bread in remembrance of me. You're going to eat the, the bread because this is not going to be a reenactment. The sacrifice isn't going to need to be repeated. My sacrifice is once and for all. There will never be another sacrifice. But you will eat the bread as a way of remembering. A way of remembering that my body was given for you. Once, for all time, never to be repeated. That is the significance of the bread. And of course, he does something similar with the cup, in verse 20, he says, This cup is, is, that is poured out is for you the new covenant in my blood. It's the, it's the new covenant cup. The, the cup of the new covenant. It doesn't mean that it's a brand new covenant. The, the prophets make it clear that this new covenant is simply the fulfillment of the old covenant. What's different about this covenant is that this covenant will be kept. The old covenant was, was broken and the curses attached to it were, were called down upon the heads of those who were in covenant with, with God. It's why the people of Israel were in exile. They had failed to, to keep the covenant. They were not able to, to earn for themselves the, the blessings that had been promised. But this covenant's going to be different. This covenant will be kept. Why? Because Jesus' disciples are better than the Israelites? Because they will prove more faithful? No but because Jesus is the faithful Israelite. He is the one who will keep the covenant. He is the one who will be obedient even to the point of death on the cross. He is the one who will perfectly fulfill the righteousness of the covenant and then receive the just penalty for unrighteousness so that we who were unrighteous 
might instead receive the blessing of righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. I am the one who will keep it. And if you come to me in faith, if you will receive me as your Lord, then you will be counted as mine. And the blessing that is rightfully mine will be given to you. And the judgment that is rightfully yours will be poured out on me. That's what the Passover is is all about. That's what's, what's going on here. That's what Jesus wants his disciples to understand. That when we come to the Lord's table, we come to the table to, to eat and to drink and to remember that Jesus' body was given for us. That his blood was shed for us. That in him, the curse has, has been poured out. In him, righteousness has been fulfilled so that we, who were by nature objects of God's wrath, might instead be His children, objects of His eternal love. This is what Jesus has done for us. Just as Passover meant that the Israelites, who were just as deserving of condemnation as the Egyptians, were spared, so too the death of our Passover lamb means that we, who like the rest of mankind, were justly deserving of wrath, might instead know his blessing. And because such a salvation is ours in Christ, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. Let us pray together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And we ask now, Father, that you would grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe your gospel that we might receive and rest upon your Son, our Passover Lamb. And that standing upon Him, we might endure whatever comes until that day when you receive us into your kingdom. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.